Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have three callers on the line. I can identify Bruce Damer first, so I'll bring him in. Hello, Bruce. Hello, hello, Tom. Good to talk to you. So we have two more callers. I'll just bring them in. Travis Savo. Hello, Travis. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm, uh, my finger is healing nicely. So, For people listening, Travis was uh, involved in a, a car accident. A car hit him while he was walking on the side of the road last Thursday night. Otherwise, he would have called into Biota Live on Friday. You missed a wonderful discussion, as you may have heard. But, uh, well, welcome back. And I'm glad you're, you're feeling recovered. Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Um, actually, it was quite the scene. I had to chase the people down who hit me and uh, stop them from driving off. But everything is under control now, and I'm back on track. Terrific. Hello, third caller. Hi, Tom. This is Scott Davis. Oh, Scott, wonderful that you're calling in for a show topic that you suggested. Good to have you on yeah. the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, as, as we have three well-versed Biota Live participants, they're familiar that we have news and notes. For folks who are interested in calling in as well, the contact number is 646 We have an active chat room as well for folks who'd like to participate but don't necessarily want to call the U.S. number. The episode next week, I believe, is also a, a Scott Davis special, Friday, September 26th, 8 p.m. Pacific, Open Source for Pragmatic Development. Scott, can you introduce this topic? Well, I was uh, interested in learning more about um, open source development for artificial life and what are the uh, pragmatic issues uh, related uh, to uh, starting a project, working on a project, uh, getting other people to participate in the project, that sort of thing. I've you know, I, I have an open source project that I've run for a while. I thought it would be interesting to discuss with other people and who have done the same and what issues they've run into. So for folks interested, uh, that topic will be next week, Friday, September 26th at 8 p.m. Pacific. And for folks who are listening in Australia or parts of Europe where that works out for them as well, we do have an active chat window. So if you'd like to sit on, on that and provide feedback and questions and comments through the chat window, that certainly saves a, a call in on the US number. So continued feedback from Biota Live Lite. It seems to be doing very well. It's in iTunes. So if you would like a lower bandwidth version of Biota Live, then Biota Live Lite is certainly the thing for you. I said a few weeks back, and I, this is a, probably a, a recurring topic, but if people are interested, please do leave reviews in iTunes. There is some equation where people who uh, look at iTunes also see podcasts with a larger number of reviews. And I think the only review we have to date, it's a U.S. review, relates to the sound quality. So... If you like what we do in Biota Live, please leave feedback on the iTunes store with regards to it, and hopefully we'll get more listeners. So Graytham-related news, quite a bit of Graytham-related news. Before I start on the formal Netherlands and Silicon Valley stuff, Graytham, New York, Bruce, when are you actually going to be in New York for the first meeting? I'm going to be in New York probably at the end of October, around Halloween, so and at the very beginning of November, so maybe would that work? That goes out to the listing audience. We already have a mailing list set up with regards to Graytham, New York, but if you're going to be going through New York through that period of time and you'd like to 
meet Bruce and the other Greysome related participants. I, I believe Adam Eremenko may be coming down to, to do something as well while you were there, Bruce. Yeah, hopefully. So it could be an interesting time to meet previous Biota Live participants if you are in the New York area. Uh, more information to follow, no doubt, in future Biota Lives. So I had an email this week from Gerald de Jong with regards to Greysome Netherlands. They are meeting this coming Tuesday, September 23rd, from 6 to 9.30 p.m. So a very long Greytham Netherlands meeting, but I think probably a lot of discussion and breakaway groups and maybe even a meal through that, uh, although Gerald didn't confirm any of that information. It is going to be at the Royal Academy of Art, excuse my Dutch pronunciation here, Princess Graat 4, 2514, The Hague, The Netherlands. However, there is also a website if my Dutch is too appalling, at K-A-B-K dot N-L. I don't see any Grayson-related stuff on that site specifically, but that's where it's going to be located. So Tuesday, September 23rd, 6 p.m. through to 9.30 p.m. at the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague for Grayson Netherlands. Gerald, and I also believe Rudolf uh, Penikov, who's appeared in previous Boat Lives, or at least a previous Boat Live, will be displaying another fellow's work, if my memory serves me right. So quite a bit of going on, and no doubt breakout groups and general discussion at Greytham Netherlands. So it's coming this Tuesday. And this Thursday, September 25th, Greytham Silicon Valley. Bruce, you're, you're on the presentation list once again with Al Landell. You're going to be talking a little bit about what you're going to be talking about this evening with regards to the Evo Grid, but I also sent some discussion out to Osher and probably CC'd you and Al, with regards to the Biota 3 uh, DVDs that Al produced probably a couple of years ago now that I've seen uh, on a number of occasions. But there are a couple of breakout groups from that where you folks discuss a kind of early precursor to the Evo grid. Do you remember those Biota 3 discussions? Yes, and in fact, on the Biota 3 site, there's a big photograph of a bunch of us standing uh, next to a good old-fashioned chalk blackboard with all these drawings on them, and I can make out the drawings. It, it looks like sort of a collective artificial life simulation grid um, that we were doing. Biota 3's orientation was the game developer community and the, really development plus the science fiction uh, element with uh, Bruce Sterling and Rudy Rocker presenting. So and a couple projects actually did come out of Biota 3, uh, the Virtual Life project by Tom Ray, uh, working with the Math Engine guys to do the blocky creatures from Carl Sims, but in Math Engine. Um, but yeah, there was, there was absolutely discussions then. So in addition to that, Scott Schaefer will be giving an update of that life, and potentially Oshi Yudger himself may present a little bit about what he's doing with Swarm. And for folks who have listened to uh, the Bioshock podcast, you'll remember Paul Johnson, who was connected with the Swarm development and uses it for political science applications. So I'm interested in seeing the videos. Al will not only be doing the videoing, but he'll actually be on the video this time, Bruce. A lot to look forward to. 7 p.m. Uh, for Greytham Silicon Valley, Thursday, September 25th at SRI International in Menlo Park, which is pretty well the de facto meeting place for Greytham Silicon Valley. Um, you need to be on time. The doors will close at 7.15. Osher would like to be emailed. Um, send an email to me, tom at noble8.com. However, somehow without people emailing me, they still tend to turn up, and I'm sure Osher will be able to accept all comers. 
There may potentially... Do you know if they're going to meet at the Barone Cafe at six prior to the meeting, Bruce? I'm sure. That's sort of becoming a tradition. Okay. So as per standard practice, meet at the Barone Cafe at 6 p.m. if you have other related uh, you know, discussion points or would like to meet with folks such as Bruce prior to the Greater meeting. And my understanding is that, uh, I mean, Scott, you presented at the, the last Greatham Silicon Valley meeting and it was quite a small and intimate group. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Yeah, it was a really nice meeting. Um, it was a very small group. I think the smallest uh, we've had, even including the uh, original one. Uh, I think it was about six or seven of us altogether. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Al wasn't there. He usually um, videos, videotapes the um, uh, presentations. But it, it was kind of nice in the fact that it was a small group. I got to really uh, discuss my project and have a lot of nice uh, question and answer sessions. It wasn't just you know a formal PowerPoint type presentation. And uh, it was a very nice, very uh, kind of uh, laid back. Um, presentation and a lot of very interesting uh, questions and uh, concepts from the group. So in terms of the top one or two of those, do you want to talk about anything that you've done in the past month based on that feedback? Probably not on the past month, uh, although I've, I've talked a little bit about some of the different things with my group. Uh, one of the things is that uh, in my project, which uh, is called the uh, Mars Simulation Project, uh, a simulation of a uh, future uh, Mars Martian settlement um, by humans. Uh, one of the concepts was that the I was trying to put way too much into the simulation. You know, uh, 15, 16 bases spread out all over the planet, interacting with one another, and it might come forward a little bit better if uh, if I just had a smaller group close to each other, so you, it would wouldn't be so overwhelming uh, to the user. We've, uh, we talked a bit about um, adding more to the uh, medical simulation aspect of it um, with different uh, uh, medical problems that, you know, are very accurate to, uh, to actual uh, medical issues people might face in that setting. We talked some about uh, databases and uh, different ways that the information could be uh, stored between simulations. At the moment, it just stores it in a uh, binary file that doesn't update well between versions and, you know, could potentially get corrupted. So it's a bit fragile. There's a few different ideas like that. Also talked about maybe applying for grants or using this in ways with uh, scientific research, which I think would be a very interesting thing if I could uh, find a useful way of tying it in. So do you think it's going to be a joint NASA-SRI-sponsored project in the future? Was that the feedback that you got? I don't know about SRI or NASA in particular, but um, I might be able to work with uh, some universities, uh, particularly in the social sciences, and possibly possibly with uh, NASA Ames as well in trying to model the uh, social issues of uh, future bases on Mars or the Moon or other locations in the solar system. I don't know. I've, I've been talking a bit with John Cumbers, who's done presentations um, evolving wet artificial life and, um, and that sort of thing uh, at the Silicon Valley uh, meetings. And we were talking about ways to simulate genetically modified biofuel-producing algae that could fixate carbon from the, uh, the natural atmosphere of Mars and make that, turn that into useful 
material. So Very we might cool. find a way to uh, to simulate that in the in the simulation. Terrific. Yeah, I thought John Cumbers and you were a, a natural kind of connecting point with regards to your interests. But for folks who are out in the Bay Area or even a reasonable commute from the Bay Area, these are the kind of things that go on at Greytham Silicon Valley. So if you have a, a project or you're even going through the Bay Area for a period of time and can't make a formal Greytham meeting, there are certainly a number of folks like Scott who are in the Bay Area who'd love to talk about artificial life and love to talk about the potential of these kind of simulations. So certainly Certainly. get in contact if you're even if you're just going through. So from last week, we got a lot of great feedback with regards to having Larry on. And to put this in some degree of perspective, when I chatted with Steve Grand, I talked with him for about three hours over a month period. And I knew coming into the chat with Larry last week that an hour just wasn't going to be enough time. So I've certainly invited Larry back. In fact, he's going to be back on at some stage with Ed to discuss protocols, languages, and algorithms. And this was also a listener-submitted question, too, with regards to the power of languages in particular and whether there existed a perfect artificial life language or whether we should be developing one in the future. And this actually came through, I think, a comment that John Daigle made in an earlier bio-to-conversation, perhaps, about the frustrations that he had with Java specifically. We are also going to have Larry back on to talk with Dick Gordon. And if you heard the chat last week with Larry, you'll hear towards the end that I was trying to make some discussion linking points with regards to Dick Gordon's discussion of artificial life's impact on science. And certainly I'm a a new convert to this. In fact, I think Dick and I came to it from different perspectives, but certainly came to the same conclusions. And Dick is trying to pull in uh, the likes of Bruce and co. into this idea as well. So it would be really interesting to have Larry on and have him able to interact with Dick in real time to discuss these issues, particularly as Larry is an artificial life academic, but also obviously has a, a solid background in industry. There was also a topic which was somewhat like that on the Biota Conversations mailing list today, and this related to do-it-yourself science and whether artificial life could be part of this new do-it-yourself science movement. And some quite interesting and quite heated discussion went through the Biota Conversations mailing list. If that sounds like something that may interest you, please subscribe to the Biota Conversations mailing list. Go to the Biota site, biota.org. You'll see the mailing list related link and you'll see the conversations link in order to join the Biota Conversations. So, Bruce, I hear some uh, some musings that there may be a, a movie uh, relating to perhaps the blob meets the Matrix, Evo Grid the movie. Can you talk a little bit about this, please? Yes, and um, based on your suggestion, I actually put the storyboards and the sketch and the script up on evogrid.org. So anyone listening to the podcast can go to www.evogrid.org, and it's right at the top of the page, along with the other EvoGrid-related uh, news of the last six months. So if you click on that, um, I don't know if anyone's uh, looking at it, the sketches are there uh, for the storyboards and the script. And just to, just to kind of wind, rewind and, and give people who are listening a little bit of an update. The evil grid concept, as Tom was suggesting, is actually a concept that has been bubbling around the artificial life field for some time, which is how do you create a grid that that attaches or allows artificial life simulations to work together? And really there's two parts to this. One, that the 
extant or existing different simulations are able to exchange objects, you know, creatures, algorithms, physics, whatnot, over a network and send things back and forth to make a richer whole, or that there's something that I think Dick Gordon really came up with in the book, which was uh, what he calls the origin of artificial life, where another Evo grid would be a large grid of machines that just sits there cranking away on a digital primordial soup uh, with certain parameters, and you crank away and crank away and hope and pray that some phenomena emerge from that. So it's sort of a hands-off approach. And I kind of call that evil grid origin of life versus evil grid intelligent designer. So there would be two evil grids in a sense. But um, in order to kind of, to, to you know, we all learned from uh, great masters of a presentation like Larry Lessig, when Larry Lessig launched the Creative Commons in 2002, one of the best things they did was produce a really cool animated movie that explained, you know, what is copyright, why doesn't it work very well anymore, what is the Creative Commons license, and this little cartoon movie was uh, sold millions and millions of people on the Creative Commons. So the concept that I had was to do EvoGrid the movie, and the sketches that you'll see on the site um, show the EvoGrid origin of life script and storyboard. And our team, we, as many listeners might know, we have a team here at Digital Space that works for NASA and has done about 10 years of work for various parts of NASA. And we do real-time 3D graphics, but we also do uh, rendered 3D visualization movies uh, for NASA. And so we're taking a little bit of our, our copious spare time to make EvoGrid the movie. And um, you'll see it described on evogrid.org. So, Travis, if you were watching EvoGrid the movie, as Bruce has described, what would you want to see specifically? There's a lot of potential for this. There's, um, I would want to see the ideas really brought to life in a way that communicates them effectively. The ideas behind the storyboard of this, of this grid and having this kind of um, uh, tank in which life is literally emerging is, is quite compelling. So um, the things that I would want to... Um, see in this are, are the ideas like um, how this is possible and why this is why this is a, a potential and um, why the uh, why this approach is actually uh, deemed to uh, we think it's going to be effective and um, the um, the difference uh, the different approaches are um, as as you know Bruce is describing them are are also both very compelling because they. They definitely take a, a, a very a varied approach to it, and I'd kind of like to see um, a little bit more of that type of idea explored in the video. And Scott, what would you like to see in EvoGrid the movie? For one thing, I, I don't know if you're uh, Bruce, if you're basically selling this, trying to convey the information to people who aren't familiar with artificial life at all. If so, you may want to show some examples of some visually compelling artificial life projects kind of in petri dishes and then communicating with uh, one another like you could assuming you get the you know the rights to like uh, the early stages in the spore game talking to uh, gene pool organisms you know things like that communicating between these various petri dishes i just that might be an interesting animation very good point Certainly when I talked to Bruce about this during the week, I saw a, a genotype-phenotype distinction where the genotype is fundamentally 
and you don't need to see, you know, nerds tinkering away on keyboards, but it's the background to what actually goes in the organisms that enter the, the um, agar, that enter the jelly, the, the, the grid fundamentally. And Bruce made an interesting point. He said that basically this was an initial pitch. This was to kind of grab people's attention initially and then you could hit them with the depth following. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Bruce? Yeah, it's um, kind of a playful, fun thing initially because, you know, there's there's so much talk about singularities and, and stuff emerging in cyberspace, but actually nobody's really even working on that. So in some in some ways, except for people in Grey Salmon Biota. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, the idea would be to, sh- to kind of in an abstract way uh, show that in principle, if one could create a technology or a simulation that in which uh, lifelike, and I'm calling them, this, this was advice from Danny Hillis. When I was floating, it's funny, I just found my notes for the NERVS project of, uh, from December 1994. I just found the notebook and all the drawings and whatnot. I'll probably put that up just for a historical background. But um, in 2001, I was floating the, the idea of an of a artificial life prize around, and I, Danny Hillis uh, gave the advice of use the term lifelike, don't use the term living or biological or whatever, because you don't want to necessarily uh, get the wrath of biologists or the fear of the, the general public. And when I talked to Richard Dawkins about it, he was extremely positive about it and wanted to be involved, um, which could, could be a good thing or a bad thing. I have no idea, but probably a good thing. How um, many times have you actually met Professor Dawkins? Well... Initially, we invited him to Digital Burgess, and I talked to him at that time. Uh, he had a family emergency. This was in 1997, and he agreed that he would try to come uh, the next time. So he actually came to Cambridge in 98 at Biota 2, and I met him there in person. And then in 2001, uh, rang him up and said, we're in Oxford, like to come by. And he said, lovely and came up we had tea there and we talked for a couple of hours and that that's the last time I've seen him and what was interesting is that the whole God delusion the thinking behind the God delusion was already kind of going in his system he he um, it was a conversation it was actually uh, Douglas Adams presentation at Biota 2 that according to his book the God delusion got him started uh, thinking along these this way, and then when 2001, when I met him, he was definitely uh, really thinking along this, this way. So it's interesting to see him evolve. But uh, so the idea would be that if you could have lifelike emergence, so calling it lifelike processes um, in inside the auger, if, if to coin Tom's Tom's description then you've actually done something fairly significant, which is to show that in principle, the universe mathematically, because that's all a simulation really is, uh, has the power to do this, to generate this kind of, of behavior from seemingly from nothing. And this will strike back at uh, origins, of, you know, our sense of God's place in the universe as a creator, and as these EvoGrid simulations become more sophisticated, if you have a million-core processor in 2000-whatever, million cores, you're going to be able to do a lot. You know, you'll run Microsoft Word about the same speed as it runs now. But 
you'll be able to do a lot more simulation. And perhaps in 2050, the simulations will be running the Evo grid of 2050. We'll actually be able to fully simulate a chemical, uh, a liquid chemical solution. And so when you're doing your, your emergence experiment, where you see things emerge and you see them take shape, and whether it's just strings of, of, of particles or vesicles are forming or whatnot, if the, if the simulation is extremely high fidelity, then you're getting really close to saying, we know this could have happened in chemistry because our simulation is so high fidelity. We do this all the time for NASA. We do higher and higher fidelity simulations of rovers moving along a, a lunar terrain. And our simulations within, I don't know, 10 years or so, are going to be high enough fidelity that we can say, if you build a sandbox or you place a rover on the lunar surface and it goes down this slope, we know how it, the wheels are going to behave. And that's the whole goal of, of 3D and, and simulation. So it, it's, an, it's an upward curve. It's not one of Ray Kurzweil's singularity curves. It's, it's an upward curve in, for something else, which is representing reality and then answering fundamental questions about where things came from. And I mean, certainly for the past probably 18 months with my own Noble Ape development, I've been looking at this idea of atomized simulation and actually in the past week had some quite major breakthroughs in terms of getting in-core processes from your favorite chip manufacturer to basically run as if it were a serial processor. And I think this kind of feedback into the simulation community, I'm interested in actually getting polyworlds running with this kind of technology too in parallel um, because I think the, the potential for um, not even processor uh, mapped where you don't even assume a number of processes, you just let the um, processing power basically take your simulation is a very powerful um, technology which is existing currently, but as you say, into the future, will just get more and more powerful. The question for this evening, how to promote your project. So I was thinking a little bit about this, Scott, with regards to what we've already discussed. This seems to be a somewhat perennial topic. And I started thinking about things like the recent SPORE PR and also various university PR that we see um, associated with artificial life simulations and developers specifically. But I think what you were talking about was fundamentally how one promotes your project as an individual. Am I right in that? Uh, yes, basically. I mean, um, projects could be at many different levels. You could have a large commercial project. You could have a small hobby project. You could, you know, could be open source or proprietary or some mixture thereof. Uh, I was just trying to think. I'm not a very good uh, PR person, yet I try to uh, do what I can to to get the word out about my uh, the project I and other developers work on. And I was wondering what other people's uh, experience was with that and uh, what ideas they have along those lines. Well, it's certainly very topical for the stuff that I do with Noble Ape because I find that I need to go through heavy development cycles and then PR cycles. I can't, as an individual, do both development and PR at the same time. It was something actually that caught me recently with the, the Spore release was that it wasn't a particularly good time for me to be taking phone calls or writing emails or doing this kind of stuff with the Noble development I've discussed so far. But Travis, I mean, you've, you've worked in companies, you've done various PR-related things. What's your... P 
particular insight is in a small company or in as, a, as an individual doing PR for your project? The best way to approach PR is to get your audience involved in it. Um, leveraging your community is by far and away the most powerful way that anybody has ever sold a product. And the advantage of the Internet is you can reach a global community without really any effort at all. Um, doing things, I mean, I think it's definitely worth mentioning, doing a podcast is a great way to get your audience involved. You invite them into the do chat and call in and participate in what it is that you're interested in. And they, in turn, will turn around and promote your uh, project because, well, it's, it's in their best interest to do so. So, I mean, the the real key in any successful PR push is is reaching um, reaching your community with a message that gets them excited about it and makes them want to rebroadcast that message. And there's uh, any number of different approaches to that. It definitely depends on the project and what you're trying, the audience you're trying to reach. But um, it, the whole idea of a branding message is something that people will repeat, and when they see it, it's recognizable. And so. Hitting that that core is very much you know key. Um, the other thing you can do is you know just kind of beyond the, the grassroots, get more of a, a physical presence. I think that to borrow your example, if I may, Tom, uh, getting people to hand out CDs, which you know that's something that ends up you know in their car, in their car CD players, and so rather than it being like a, a an active experience of like somebody going out and getting it to them, it becomes more of a passive thing that they kind of stumble upon. Um, and can embrace in their own time rather than having uh, a branding message pushed on them in a, in a time frame that's not convenient to them. So these types of opt-in advertising where you can choose to put CD player in your uh, car and listen to it or not, if that's what you prefer, is very much a, a, a powerful and effective way of reaching the right people with your message. And I think there's something particularly interesting with artificial life because it's we are really moving into a stage now where particularly through things like podcasts and websites and blogs and these kind of things, the people that you're reaching probably have already had some prior experience, even if it's passive, with regards to reading something about wet artificial life or you know seeing something on the Guardian site or all these various outlets that provide occasional information associated with artificial life. So if you're dealing with what I'll call new media, things like podcasts, digital print, these kind of things, then you're going to have an audience that's going to be distinctly different from someone who, for example, will see an article in a newspaper, potentially something on television or potentially something on the radio. Bruce, you do this on a, a regular basis, but how do you approach an audience that may not know anything about artificial life? Well, it, it's, it's pretty much similar to the way I have done it for 15 years about avatars and virtual worlds. I go into the worlds. I go into the environments. I often, the first thing I show is Carl Sims' blocky creatures, and everybody gets that. Everybody loves it. It's very... Um, sort of human identifiable, the, the gorilla blockies running in the fish and the, the swimming ones and, and things like that. And, and, and then I'll say run Alan Alda's piece from Scientific American Frontier, so that's extremely well put together. And then I'll try to explain how this is hard and how this isn't necessarily gray goo that will eat the world and how this can be used and, and, and start to show the variety of artificial life projects and talk about the people. 
But that's fundamentally visual in some regard, and I think a lot of the media that we deal with, particularly audio-related media, but also, for example, if you're doing spots on a, a video podcast or on television or things like that, you may not have access to those kind of resources. So the really, as well as the visual aids and the descriptive movies and these kind of things that you use in a lot of your presentations, uh, it was interesting uh, recently, I think it was Travis even, that talked about the touchstone uh, effect um, relating to Joe's uh, work and how he described his work into lacing with, uh, with artificial life. And I think there are many different components that one can use to describe artificial life to an audience that's not familiar with artificial life. I find talking about anthropomorphism and philosophy and all these kind of things for people who've heard me speak previously uh, about artificial life gives an immediate personal connection, particularly with regards to animals and the difference and same qualities. And this is fundamentally what artificial life is about on an emotive level. But what I find interesting now also is that we, through this um, collection of blogs and online articles and even various aspects of media, I think the earlier um, videos, there was a BBC one and the one that you mentioned, and now also a Discovery Channel one featuring Larry Yeager that talk about artificial life in a historical context in some regard, don't portray what the modern artificial life community is about. And this is an interesting problem that if you interact with people who just say, well, artificial life is just genetic algorithms. I mean, I already know what artificial life is about. Or, oh, I saw that movie in the 80s, you know, that, what's going on with artificial life now? Travis, in terms of communicating with folks that have wrong or conflicting information about artificial life, how would you see to kind of set the record straight and bring them into what's going on in a contemporary setting? Um, by far and away, the best example, the best way to lead is by example, the, um, showing them the existing projects that are out there in order to demonstrate a, a finer point um, is by far and away one of the, one of the best things you can do. Um, case in point, uh, whenever I go to talk about um, our evolving structures and things like that, people often um, get the impression that you couldn't you couldn't possibly have something that walked on two legs unless you had designed it to walk on two legs. And that's where I bust right out with Gel Dejun's uh videos from his um uh Dar from his Darwin at home, uh which shows literally that this bipedal form getting up and, and lumbering around on two legs and describing to them exactly, you know, breaking down all the processes which went into this, which are very fundamentally mathematic and simple to understand when you simply look at what's going on in the simulation. And so using these uh, visual examples and using these uh, you know, videos is, is really that, the best way that I have found for as far as like breaking things down to people to a really fundamental level that, that's kind of inarguable. And that's fundamentally John Klein's Brevet screensaver as well. I've had a number of instances where from you know, squirming blockies, it has moved to bipedal walking purely through the fact that it covers more distance. And when you see people observe the screensaver, and it was a very strong uh, point of impact, certainly through Floss Weekly, if people have heard the Floss Weekly interview that I did recently, uh, the, the hosts had seen the Brevet screensaver previously. So all these methods in a visual sense get the... Uh, the contemporary message, or at least the historical message of artificial life out to an, an audience. But there seem to be additional components, particularly when you're dealing with a specific project. 
And the way I like to think about it with Noble Ape, although it's now considerably more abstract than this, but I always think of three independent and distinct people. And these people could be a, a teenager, a high school student, for example, um, someone who has studied biology, and someone who basically has no connection contemporarily with any aspect of science. But they may be social people or they may have aspects of their life that you know one can find a connection with. And in fact, finding the most hostile in some regard people to use in this example in order to frame how do you describe your project to this person oftentimes will strengthen in your own mind how to describe your project to by far the broadest possible audience. So Scott, for you specifically, if you were talking to a high school student, how would you explain Marsden? Oh boy. Um, actually, probably about the same as if I was explaining it to uh, most audiences. Uh, I found uh, high school students tend to um, understand the concepts fairly well because you can explain to them in terms of uh, computer games that they may already be familiar with, uh, like Civilization or SimCity or, you know, something like that. And I imagine the same could be said for most artificial life uh, projects, that you could find some connection uh, to uh, games or, uh, or uh, other forms of uh, popular media that they would uh, be familiar with. Um, and I, I think teenagers and grade school kids in particular are, have very vivid imaginations at that age, and uh, they're able to wrap their, their minds around the concepts, sometimes a lot easier than uh, adults do. But in some regard, that can be a double-edged sword as well. When I started developing Noble Ape, the immediate feedback I got was, well, isn't that just like SimCity or... You know, aren't they already doing that at Maxis? Or what's the depth, what's the interest in this thing? And I think with regards to particularly misinformation or just a misapprehension with regards to artificial life, you really need to be able to move past just the pure touchstone analogy into something which is considerably more personal and, and, and active in order to engage with the particular audiences Bruce, I can't imagine you ever going into a hostile crowd, but I can certainly imagine you going into a disinterested crowd in some regard. I mean, your background is really talking about avatars. And I'm sure out of the audiences that you've spoken to over the past 15 years, there have been particular audiences that you've turned around. Can you talk a little bit about one of those experiences? Well, it's certainly that much harder audiences are the academics. I mean, they already have a tremendous amount of filters and things up, and they're very specialized in their fields. The best audiences are young people, high schools, uh, elementary schools. When I do science talks in elementary schools, uh, one of the things that, that is, happens, especially in the United States, is you have to be sort of concerned because if you're talking to schools and there could be a religious a sort of fundamentalist component, anti-evolution component going on anywhere, you may get a question about whether all of this is work or is, it, is evolution a real thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so in order to, to turn that around, you have to really go back down to, to basic things like talking about how dogs are bred and how you can see uh, the evolution of, of you know, we're always trying to get better medicines because 
the bugs keep changing, and that's evolution, and it happens in, really in front of your eyes. And then you can win over audiences, but you, you really can't talk down to people. You can't use sort of fancy words, and you can't kind of go, and I, th I think this is really important, go into the pop, pop culture kinds of things, so the way that, say, Ray Kurzweil would address an audience. You know, a mixture of pop culture and uh, futures that are very highly unlikely, and a lot of, of terms and inventing new terms, and it just creates a hysteria. It creates either a kind of a cult following, but also a hysteria or a kind of a uh, kind of a delusional state. And I think that that, as engineers, most of us here are engineers. We have to always be careful to not do that. So that's an interesting critique, because in some regard, I would say the opposite, that what we have in some regard is an ability to actually critique the hysteria and provide feedback and analysis where if people have heard, for example, about Kurzweil's work, we can offer very distinct and credible critiques with regards to a number of aspects of his work. And moreover, it gives a currency and an importance to what we're doing than if we just sit on our hands and say, well, you know, this little simulation and the dots move around on the screen and like all the monkeys and these kind of things. And this is actually a debate that goes on currently on the Biota Conversations mailing list and also privately between me and a number of other individuals. So I, I'm not speaking as, as the Biota community as a whole here, but I think it's a very powerful tool for us to... Uh, use the knowledge that we've gained, many of us for, you know, more than a decade, some for even more than two decades, to flush out the charlatans in some regard and also say, hey, wait, we're doing interesting work, which actually has a serious impact on these kind of things. And in large part, we're doing it as hobbies. We're not doing it in, in parts of, you know, the scientific community or in industry, although it has an impact on this. And this kind of narrative I've found recently, and certainly a number of the folks listening to this podcast now came to it through the Floss Weekly interview. It seems to work in some regard. Now, the critical part about that is that you will get called out and you will have to give increasingly detailed descriptions about exactly what you mean. But I will return to what Bruce said, that you can't use new terms unless you define them really tightly and in a way where they then become part of the, the popular vernacular as well. Travis... As you follow terms and ideas and technology and these kind of things, what feedback can you give to artificial life developers currently in this regard? Stay the course. Um, it's, it's as much evangelism as it is anything else. Um, getting people to understand and believe in the ideas um, is a largely, at this point, a, a problem of vocabulary. The ideas have been proven empirically over and over again. You know, as, as, to pick a, a scientific term at random, microwave radiation, this describes a phenomenon just like artificial life does, life itself. Um, we don't have any exact proof or way of proving that this exists, but we can ex observe it over and over and over again. We can observe evolution over and over and over again in any situation that we set up the, the, the scenarios required to make it work. Same as microwave radiation. And people believe in microwave radiation. They just haven't heard about artificial life yet. So it's, it's about staying the course. It's very much keep getting that word out there, keep getting people to understand what it is that we're talking about and what it is that we're describing here. 
And two things I wanted to raise before we rounded up this discussion, and as I say, it's going to be a perennial discussion because there are ideas and concepts that come in constantly with regards to promoting projects. But something that I've seen recently, and I've seen particularly through Joe's work and also people like Gerald Jung and um, Joseph Nockvatel and these kind of folk have used viral videos quite successfully. This is ultimately part of the Graysome mandate, if not explicitly, then implicitly. In terms of the impact of videos, I've seen this myself because Bruce's demonstration at Graysome of no blape I put up on YouTube, and I think it's currently at about a 1,000 plays. In fact, Bruce gets fan mail saying that it's wonderful that he's working on Noble Eight currently, which always makes me chuckle a little bit. But in terms of this viral video component, Bruce, do you want to talk about that initially and then we'll pass it to Travis and Scott? Yeah, and, and um, by the way, Dick Gordon is trying to log in and can't seem to get a password for the um, or a login for the chat room. He just sent an email. Uh, but I, I think as, as as a group, if we can produce a really good viral email that explains this, explains what this is, it will really go a long way, and that's really using the tools of the modern age. And I, I am offering our team uh, to do that. We probably have at least another couple of months of funding uh, to be able to work on this. And I'm going for meetings at NASA next week, and we may getting, be getting two more projects that will take us into spring of 09, and so I can actually almost continually have our animator, who's very good, um, build movie after movie and movies within movies. So we could have some really good tools out of it. The caveat being this initial set of movies I want to help with my PhD project um, and explain uh, what I'm trying to do to, to my PhD reviewers uh, early on. I'm only in the, literally in the first few months of the PhD work. So contact Bruce for more information with regards to, to video generation. And the second point that I wanted to make, and this is certainly something which is topical from Zan Gill's appearance, and I know Travis took exception to it and I would have taken exception as well, is with regards to the use of Facebook and social networks in general in order to cultivate a sense of firstly who your users are, which I think is probably one of the most impressive things that I've found with Facebook through the uh, the Biota group on Facebook and also my, my Noble 8 groups on Facebook is that I can see a wide variety of people that I could never possibly have imagined had used Noble 8 in the past or were part of the Biota community, more importantly. And I now can have primary access to them. I can see what they're interested in. They can correspond with me and I can get a greater sense of this. Scott, have you thought about utilizing Facebook with regards to, to your Mars simulation in that regard? I, I've uh, had people uh, suggest that I uh, set up um, a Facebook uh, group for uh, my project. Um, I'm still thinking about it. I've, I've already got a number of message boards and various groups set up, but um, that's something that I might be interested in doing. Um, yeah, I, and you can't discount things just like uh, searching for related uh, message boards and forums and such. Uh, to, the, to the topic of your project. There's a lot of people who uh, regularly are involved with those. Certainly, and obviously download sites and these kind of things are critical, particularly if you have 
autonomous software that can be downloaded or can exist on a traditional or an open source download site. Certainly my experience with Noble Ape has been with regards to propagating it on all possible download sites with the view that you'll get users that would never have exposure or interest in artificial life if you just put it, for example, on a single open source download site. Travis, can you talk a little bit about utilising both Facebook and download sites in terms of uh, getting promotion for one's project? Well, certainly. Um, the thing about the Facebook um, is it provides you with this really awesome platform to uh, expand your offering upon. So you can utilize the, the network of Facebook in order to bring in people and have them in turn bring in more people. So uh, an interesting experiment might even be to try and build a, an artificial life Facebook application in which uh, we explore some of the um, scenarios of evolution in a, in a social sense, um, bringing people in and having people um, <coughs> doing different things to uh, expand their networks and do things like that. The file download sites are, are equally important. Um, the thing that uh, is most important about them is you have to reach them with a, with a good medium. Video is an awesome medium because it really does um, reach a, a, an easy to an easy to, to hit crowd, right? You know, they pull it up and they're watching it, and it's five minutes of their time, and they've got this visual and audio experience with it. Um, I think that there's um, there's more opportunities within that, though. I think there's opportunities for narratives, fiction, uh, and uh, you know, using uh, Facebook as a as a blog and using it to uh, bring more of a narrative to your audience. Um, there's lots of different ways to um, capture them on Facebook, not just with applications, but also with groups and um, discussion lists and things like that. So there's lots of different options available to you, and it's really a matter of finding the one that works best for your project and finding the one that works best for your audience. And the user-generated content through YouTube is just phenomenal. I mean, the ability to have... If I was writing a project currently, I would look into the video interface with regards to YouTube just in terms of, I mean, for example, if you look at Joe Ream's work, it is all user-generated content on YouTube that then focuses back to his, his primary site. And the ability to have that in a kind of plug-in interaction where people can say, oh, this, you know, this is cool, you know, I'll take, um, you know, however many minutes of this evolving or what have you, and then immediately upload it to YouTube is very, very powerful. Do you want to talk a little bit about this, Travis? Oh, it's, it's absolutely amazing. The, uh, the technology is, is rapidly progressing. Um, there's, uh, what's his name? Uh, a famous blogger, his name is Escaping Me, who's predicting that, um, that the Apple's going to come out with some more technology here to further improve the situation, namely uh, video encoding and decoding chips standard in all of their products. Um, and if this happens, the, the ante will be upped even further because now we'll be dealing with users who are capable of producing high-definition movies literally on the fly. And, and combined with the uh, amateur video, pro video production programs that are available and uh, that are literally studio quality and are being used in studios, things like Final Cut Pro, um, the opportunities here to the home user to create just absolutely stunning content is, is mind-boggling. And the thing about it is, is it's so easy to take that content and transport it anywhere else. You can take the, take the movie and embed it on any web page and send it to your friends. And the, the, the reach of it is just is, it's infinite. The potential is amazing. Certainly. And with five minutes remaining, Scott, have we covered 
sufficient number of topics for you or are there other topics that you'd like covered in a future promotion related bio to live? Oh, um, the only thing else I would talk about uh, related to uh, promoting your project is uh, every time you come out with a new release version of your project, you should use that as an uh, opportunity to promote it, or at least that's what I do on my project. Every few months we come out with a new version release, and I put the message out to all the uh, uh, message boards and forums and uh, also to uh, Fresh Meat, which is a, uh, um, a release uh, file download site that is freshmeat.net. It's very impressive for open source projects, and it from there gets sent out to hundreds of other sites. So to me, that every time that uh, we put out a release that's a great opportunity to look for um, fresh ways to promote the project. And analogous to podcasts, Fresh Meat has a subscription service as well where people can subscribe to your project and get every new release that comes out, and that's certainly something that's, that I found very cool with regards to Noble Ape releases as well. So with three minutes remaining, I'd like to thank you all for, for participating in this evening's topic. It's been wonderful to have an update with regards to the Evo Grid, Bruce. In the next few weeks, we're going to have Scott's open source topic next week. There is potential for us having Larry Yeager back on, and if we have Larry Yeager back on, it may be with regards to Ed uh, coming on and discussing protocols, which almost fits into the open source topic. Or alternatively, Dick Gordon, I'm sorry he couldn't call in and participate. I'm not sure what the issue was with regards to the password, but I look forward to having future discussions with Dick, with Larry on as well. I'd like to thank you all very much for calling in this evening and participating. Good chatting with you all. Well, thank you very thank you, much, Tom. Tommy. Definitely, definitely a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this uh, upcoming protocol and uh, language uh, podcast, because if we don't get into a good discussion of some of the novel features of Erlang, Haskell, and Prolog, we're definitely missing a point there. Oh, I think it's um, probably going to be ApeScript, Steve, and um, what's that one? K-Forth. That's Ken Stauffer's programming language for artificial life. So a wide variety of possible languages coming in the very near future. Thank you for calling in. Thank you, folks, for listening in this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.